what I want us to walk away with is that we find unity through the Lord Jesus Christ and we find the Lord Jesus Christ in his story, i.e. the gospel. Okay, so our unity is found in Christ and Christ himself is found in his story, the gospel. All right. So we're going to read Philippians chapter. I'm going to read Philippians chapter two, verses five through eleven, reading in the NIV. If you want to get your Bibles out and read along or you can read it right up here. Not a very long text today. And so it begins in verse five. It says in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in, in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be gra- to be used, excuse me, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Friends, please pray along with me before we get into the sermon this morning. God, I thank you so much for another Sunday to worship my brothers and sisters. I thank you for your mercy that you saw it fit to keep me through my time away, that I was able to get back to this place, sharing your word with my brothers and sisters experiencing your love and your encouragement, your conviction, your inspiration together. And, oh, Holy Spirit, I ask that even as you've been, you would continue to be with us this morning in a very special way. Lord God, um, I just pray that you would help me through your empowerment, through your help, your strength, that your word that you've given me would go forth to your people with clarity. Lord, that um, I would proclaim it with conviction and that you would make it effective in every heart and mind here in such a way that we would trust and believe in you as we ought. Lord God, that we would rest and have peace in who you are. And Lord God, as is the message of this sermon, that we would indeed have unity, that you would dissolve dissension and division and help us in you to truly love and be united to one another. Forgive us for our sins and the ways that we've been divided and help us through the power of Holy Spirit to overcome. We love and we thank you this day. We give you the glory and the honor and the praise because indeed you are worthy, our God and our Father and our King. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we begin this sermon this morning, I want us all to take a moment to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you're at the end of your life, okay? Um, Prayerfully for all of us, that's a way down the road, but imagine that at this moment you're at the end of your life and you have an opportunity to share something, some parting thoughts, some final words with someone, okay? Now, who are you going to share with? Who's that person that you want to make sure you say, say these things to? And then secondly, what are the things that you say. What do you say to them? Okay, so you're at the end of your life. You have, some, you have a few words you can share. With whom do you share them? And what are those words? What do you say? Now, as you put yourself in that place, in your imagination, 
understand that in our text today, this is exactly where Paul is. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the, to the Philippians. Okay? Paul has been imprisoned for proclaiming the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is in chains because he's been faithful to the mission that God has given him. And he senses that he's at the end of his life. He senses that it's about to be it, right? The curtains are about to close. And as such, he has some very important parting words to share with some beloved people. And the people with whom he chooses to share them are his brothers and sisters in the faith, particularly here the Philippians. Now, the Philippians are not the only brothers and sisters in the faith that he writes to from jail, but they're amongst that number. The most important people that he could think about sharing these final thoughts with are these Philippians. And the church that's in Philippi. And what he thinks is most important for him to share, what he needs for them to hear from him before he departs this life, is that they maintain unity. That they be unified. You and I right now, we live in a time where there is no, there is no shortage of terrible thing going on in the world. Right? We're still in the middle of a pandemic. Thankfully, we're not wearing masks. Some of us aren't. Those of you who are I don't mean anything other than a lot of us are not. But we're still in the midst of this pandemic, two and a half years in. And if that's not enough, I don't know if you've been keeping track of what's going on across the pond in Russia and Ukraine, but it looks like we may be on the brink of a world war. I hope not, but I don't know. There is no shortage of terrible thing happening in this world. And could you imagine if Paul was among us and he said, hey, listen, you know what I want to talk about in the middle of this? Unity. But brothers and sisters, this is because the, uni the unity of the brothers and sisters of the faith, the unity of those of us who are called by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is this important. Our unity is pivotal to the kingdom of God. Jesus puts it this way. He says, Lord, I pray that they would be one. I pray that they would be one. Why? So that the world would know. So that the world would know that you and I are one and that we are in them. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's imperative, it's most important that when the world is falling apart, the church remains unified. Because the world needs to know that their hope ultimately lies in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how will they know that when they look to the church and they see among us unity? So our unity is of great importance. In this particular moment, in any moment, our unity is of great importance. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, hey, Philippians, I'm about to leave, and this is the most important thing I could leave with you. Stay unified. Don't let dissension, don't let divisions creep up in you. Fight it. Stay unified. And so from the beginning of chapter 1 up until now, he's, he's urging them. Be of one mind. Be of one mission. Maintain deep concern for each other. Be unified. And when we get to our passage this morning in verse 5 of chapter 2, he gives us some clear ways that we can do this. Some clear ways that unity can be accomplished among them. Now, 
Last time I preached, I did something that I really enjoyed. It was really cool, and I thought it was really helpful for the sermon. I decided to reach back into my seminary bag and reach back into my Greek and go ahead and interpret all of the passage from that last sermon from the Greek to the English. And I had some great insight, some great nuance, and it was great, and people were rocking with me and everything. And I thought I'd do the same thing with this passage. Completely different story. It was not nearly as easy to decipher the Greek into English from this passage. The word order was all crazy. The words that he uses, there are like three words in here that are not found in any ancient Greek literature but Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It's just so strange, or at least one. I think there's one or two. But, and it's, it's just strangely written. And so I'm doing it, and right before I gave up, something came to me. I was reminded that the reason it was so weird and strange is because it's not a normal part of the letter. It's not a regular piece of writing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11 is actually a hymn. It's a song. And Paul is recalling this song for the Philippians to remind them of some great truth. And just like with our music and our song, it doesn't follow the the regular constructs of writing and prose and stuff. It's because it's meant to be creative. It's meant to to help us and remind us of truths and the things that we feel and the things that we think, the things we believe in ways that are easy for us to internalize, right? To take to heart. Hymns and creeds and anthems, they are tools. They are mechanisms that help us take what's in our heads and place them in our hearts. Right? A song is a way for us to take truth from our head and cause it to travel down to our hearts. And that's what Paul is communicating this morning. Paul wants them to see that their unity is going to be found in Christ and Christ is found in the story. And in order to help them to better recall the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, he used the hymn that they're familiar with, a hymn that tells the story of Jesus, a hymn that tells the gospel. And we do the same things, brothers and sisters, don't we? Like, think about when we teach our children truths. We teach our children things, right? For example, the ABCs. How'd you learn the ABCs? A, B, C, no. A, B, C, D. That's how you learned it, right? Or think about one of my favorite movies. Some of you are going to be shocked because you didn't know I was this cultured. But one of my favorite movies, The Sound of Music. Did I shock you? Did I shock you? Yeah, I know. Yeah. One of my favorite movies, The Sound of Music, right? How they teach the musical scale in there. Do a deer, a female deer, ray a drop of golden sun. I expected some. Was someone singing with me? I expected. Oh, oh, good. There you are. Good. Okay. I, I expected there to be a chorus of everyone singing with me, but not as cultured as I am and, and as Mary is. I see. I see. All right, well, watch it at some point. But that's what we do. We do the same thing with creeds and anthems, right? Think about the national anthem, right? It's not quite melody, but the way we say it, it commits it to memory, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Like, you know, what if someone stood up and said, I pledge allegiance to the flag? You'd be like, bro, you, you ain't saying it right. Because that's not how we learn it. We learned it to a certain melody. And that's how we internalize truth. Think about the creeds. Think about the Apostles' Creed that we say during membership or during baptism. Right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Right? You, you hear the melody? You hear it? And so Paul understands 
with the story of Jesus being found, right, with Jesus being found in his story, he's utilizing this common hymn, this hymn that tells the story, so that they would readily recall it in order to maintain their unity. And again, I just, I just want to commend to you how important this mechanism is for our own faith. There's a book that I was reading recently, and it's a book by a man named David DeSanto. Now listen, I am, not, I am not saying read this entire book. It's not filled with a ton of great things, but he does say something great at one point. He says, repeating prayers in creeds doesn't only reinforce belief by affecting memory, however. As Jews recite the Shema or Christians, the Apostles' Creed, Creeds expressing central tenets of their faiths, they're explicitly stating their belief in God and in his commandments. From the brain's perspective, there's no reason, unless you're actively trying to deceive someone, to say something that you don't believe to some degree. You'd, even, you'd be even less likely to say such things in front of others if you thought they were false. Doing so, publicly stating something you might not fully believe, produces a state psychologist called cognitive dissonance or cognitive difference, which has to be resolved and which then serves as a powerful source of persuasion. Put simply, brothers and sisters, things like hymns and creeds and songs, they help us to recite truth out loud so that we can better believe them. Right? It resolves the dissonance, the difference between what we want to believe, what we should believe, and what we actually believe, so that what we want to believe becomes what we truly believe. Friends, this is why it's so important that when we get together, we sing these songs together. It's important that we sing the songs out loud, because sometimes, if you're, if you're like me, you're just not with it all when you get here. And by singing the songs, what happens is the truth that we know we should believe up here travels down to our heart and becomes the truth that we actually believe. The truth that we just know up here travels down and it becomes the truth that we actually live out. And brothers and sisters, again, this is what Paul is trying to do to them. They know some good things about unity, right? They know unity is a good thing, but how do they actually live it out? How do they maintain it? Now, have I nailed the idea of this thing being a hymn? Have I, have I beat the dead horse enough? You guys got it? It's a hymn, and it's helpful. <laughs> so with all of that said, Paul wants them to be unified. He recalls the hymn towards this end. And so here's the question. What is this hymn telling us? Or what story is this hymn telling that will empower the Philippians and thereby us towards unity? And the first thing, I've said it several times already, is this. The hymn is recalling the story of Jesus. All that Christians need, all that the Philippians need, all that we need to be unified is found in Jesus with whom we are unified through faith. When Paul tells the Philippians to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he's reminding them of their union with Christ through faith. He's reminding them by, that by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in him and he is in us. Another way to say what Paul is communicating in this passage is this. He's saying, have this mindset or this disposition in you because it is 
your disposition or mindset in Christ. Okay? As it belongs to Christ, it also belongs to us. And so that their ability to maintain unity with, it, with each other will not come from merely just trying harder to be unified. Right? It's not going to come from just trying harder to maintain unity. But it's going to come from them drawing nearer and closer to the Christ who grants them all that they need for unity in himself. Pastor Drew said last week, he talked about pressing on. He talked about how the ability to press on isn't found in just pressing on. Right? It's not found in just trying harder. It's found in drawing nearer to Christ. Because in him is found the power to press on. And in Jesus is found the power we need for unity. This is what Paul is getting at. The mindset of unity, the disposition of unity is found in Jesus and not merely just trying to be unified. And what this means for us, brothers and sisters, is this. It means that more often than not, most of our relational schisms, most of the divides that creep in among us, are not as much a result of our distance from each other as it is our distance from Christ. Most of our schisms, most of the ways that we find it difficult to get along don't come from the fact that we're distant from each other, but the fact that really and truly we're not drawing near to Christ as much as we need to. The lack of unity we experience between each other is in direct relationship to the lack of unity or union that we are maintaining with Jesus. Think about this, brothers and sisters. Could it be that we struggle to forgive each other because we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven in Christ? Could it be that we struggle to love each other Because we've forgotten how much we are loved in Christ. Could it be that the reason why we become exclusive in our little cliques and groups among the community, because we've forgotten that that God has adopted us into the family of God as sons and daughters in Christ? I think so. And I think we forget, friends, because we stop telling ourselves the story. We distance ourselves from the story and thereby distance ourselves from Jesus. Friends, we forget because we stop telling ourselves that it's in Christ we're forgiven, that it's in Christ that we're loved, that it's in Christ that we're sons and daughters of our God. And so what's the answer? What's the remedy to this? Friends, keep telling yourself the story. Keep singing the story. Keep reciting the story. Keep reading the story. Keep preaching the story. Because it's in the story that we'll find our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is only in him that we will find the means to persevere in this life and to persevere in unity with one another. Stay in the story. And so here's the other question we'll answer this morning. What do we have in Christ? We, we, we have the story. We found Jesus in the story. We know we need to maintain unity with Christ. Well, 
what do we have in our unity with Christ that would help us maintain unity among each other? And the hymn recalls two things about Jesus. The first is this, humility. Humility is ours in Christ. Like I said earlier, this passage is written in very different, difficult language. It's hard to, to parse out everything that he's saying in English. But essentially what the hymn says this, is that even though Jesus is God, right, even though Jesus is God, and he has the right to claim all that being God would offer, he gave it all up so that he could be of service to us. Okay? So if we're going to maintain unity with one another, we'll have to follow his lead, and we will have to forsake any notion of status among us. We'll have to forsake any notion of status among us. And by this, I mean that we have to, stake any, we have to forsake any notion that any of us occupy any station higher or lower than anyone else. We have to truly embody this idea that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Right? I tried to think about this myself. I tried to think, you know, Leon, I, I know Redeemer, and if Redeemer is good at anything, um, we're good at not thinking that we're too high or, or too mighty to serve anybody, right? This, this is a special place. I say that as your pastor. Some may hear that and think, of course you're going to say that. You want to believe that about your church. Um, I'm not bragging in that sense. I'm bragging in the sense that it's really true. I guess I'm thinking, how would you know it's true, especially if you don't know me or this church? Just take my word for it. But here's the truth, okay? I know you guys do it well. And so I was like, man, I don't see where I explicitly did it. So I had to sit down and think, and I realized where I do it. And I think a few of us will find ourselves in this place as well. I do this, right? I, I, I don't forsake any notion of status. I lean into this idea of status whenever I give in to the sin of comparison, Right? Whenever I give into the sin of comparison, I am failing at this. Because the sin of comparison is automatically anti or counter humility. Because it requires that I be found, found either above or beneath someone else. Right? And when the sin of comparison enters into a community, it automatically creates divides. As we determine who we're too good to be around or who's too good for us. Amen? But in Christ, Paul tells that there is a mechanism, a way of seeing each other that will help us avoid the sin of comparison. Look in verses 3 and 4 right before our passage. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In other words, brothers and sisters, the way that we can just lock this, in, lock this away in our minds and our hearts is this. Think of others more and think more of others. Or put differently, think less of yourselves and think of yourselves less. How'd that land with you guys? Write it down. I bet it makes sense. Think of yourselves more. I mean, excuse me. Think of others more. And think more of others. Think of yourself less and think less of yourself. And by doing this, brothers and sisters, we won't fall into the sins of comparison and pride because when we think that way, our status won't matter. Status won't matter among us. Each of us will be so busy making sure that the other is okay that we won't get caught up in divisions and all this mess. 
Amen. So the first thing that's ours in Christ is humility. And the second thing that we have in Christ is sacrifice. One of the very novel, the very, very foundational facets of our faith is the fact that it's born of death. The Christian faith is rooted and grounded, is born from the death of our Savior. All that Jesus affords us came through his death. We are saved, listen to this, brothers and sisters, we are saved because Jesus chose death over deity. We are saved because Jesus chose death over deity. And what I mean by this, and what this hymn tells us, is that although Jesus is 100% God, for our sake he became 100% man and subjected himself to dying like a man. And not just any old death, but quite possibly, brothers and sisters, the most humiliating and painful death available to any man during his day. Death on the cross. And in this way, brothers and sisters, Jesus wasn't just dying in a physical way. It was the ultimate sacrifice of his dignity and his status. It was the ultimate assumption of shame and disgrace. Also, that we wouldn't have to make the same sacrifices. Also, that we wouldn't have to bear the same shame and disgrace. Friends, Jesus' shame means our dignity. Jesus' disgrace means our redemption. And as those who now find ourselves unified to Christ, find ourselves in Christ by faith, we also find ourselves taking part in his death and his sacrifice so that as we relate to others, as we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we too are called to die. We too are called to sacrifice. We too sacrifice so that our brothers and sisters would flourish. And what does this look like in our relationships? Well, It looks like dying to our need to be right so that our spouse or our friend or our brother or sister can have their need to be loved fulfilled. What does it look like to sacrifice and die in these relationships? Well, it looks like dying to our need for vengeance so that the other can be forgiven. In Christ, humility is ours. In Christ, sacrifice is ours. Friends, I always remember this story. I told it a few years ago, but it's a story I'll never forget. I haven't spoken to my friend Chris in years and years. But I went to college at Emmanuel College. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's nothing there but chicken houses and cow farms. So you can imagine the smell. Every time I smell a chicken house, I remember college. And, uh, and if some of you guys, I know my folks from Iowa, you know what chicken houses smell like, don't you? Yeah, you got it. But I remember, um, I remember uh, one, one day after basketball practice, I think I'd, we practiced right through cafeteria time, so I'm in my room, and all I have left to eat is two slices of bread and some peanut butter and maybe I think it was some honey. A jelly. That's all I have left to eat. So these are broke college days that I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with. And there was a guy who lived up there in the middle of nowhere in Royston. His name was Chris. 
And Chris just, we were his community. He just adopted every class that came in to be his community because there was nobody else there. And one day, I'm, I'm sitting in there, and I'm, ma- I'm making this sandwich, and I, and I made it. It was, it was thick, too, right? Because I don't have any more bread to make two sandwiches, so I put enough peanut butter and jelly worth, you know, worth for two sandwiches in one sandwich, right? So it's thick. I'm ready. And, uh, and I remember, I, I just had a very simple makeup in my room. It was my refrigerator and a microwave on it. And I just set that thing on top of the microwave, and I was going to run to the bathroom and then come back and eat my thing. So I ran to the bathroom. I came back and just run into the bathroom, gave, it just enough, just, gave me just enough time for you-know-who to come walking down the hall. It's Chris. And whenever Chris came to your room, Chris was hungry. Always hungry when he came to your room. And so I get in my room, I lock the door, I go to eat my sandwich, and sure enough, I hear Chris coming down the hall, and I just start praying. I said, God, don't let Chris knock on my door, Lord. Please don't let Chris. I don't have any other food for him but this sandwich. And sure enough, Chris comes knocking on the door. He says, hey, Leah. Hey, Leah. And I didn't answer the first time. And he didn't leave. And sure enough, he, he opened the door, and first thing, his eyes locked on my sandwich. And I tried, I tried to get it to where he wouldn't, he wouldn't notice it. I tried to talk to him about other stuff. And then finally I just said, hey, Chris, you hungry? Yeah, man, yeah, I'll take that sandwich. And I gave Chris a sandwich, and I went to bed hungry that night. You know, and I don't say that to big myself up by any stretch. I don't, because my heart was not right. I was very angry as he ate my sandwich. I was. I wasn't happy about it. It wasn't nothing godly about it. But... I say that to say, brothers and sisters, that this is the kind of sacrifice we're called to to maintain unity with others, right? Giving up that metaphorical sandwich so that someone else can be full. Giving up whatever that thing is that you believe you absolutely need in that moment. I use that, that, whole, that whole thing about being right in marriage. I use it intentionally because I don't know what you need more than anything in an argument than to be right when you're arguing with a spouse. I just keep 100. What does it mean to give that up? What does it I mean, what does it mean when someone is dead wrong and they're coming at you and for you to just give it up so you can forgive them instead of telling them how wrong they are and just being, you know, being vengeful? Well, let me tell you what you did when you... What does it look like? This is what, this is what we're called to. This is what we have in Christ if we're going to maintain unity, the power we need to be unified, the humility that we must have and, and the sacrifice that we must, we must exercise is found in Jesus. And Jesus, brothers and sisters, is found in the story. He's found in the gospel. And as I close, if Rachel will come. Go to that last slide. Full transparency right here. I wanted to do something really cool at the end of the service here. How many of you guys are familiar with this, this little statue? This little, um, it's pretty, pretty popular. If you've ever been to the Chick-fil-A headquarters, when you walk into the atrium, it's a huge, a huge one like this in the atrium, a uh, huge like bronze statue uh, with, with Jesus washing. I believe that's supposed to be Peter's feet. And what I wanted to do today was uh, I wanted to read something from you from the, from the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Fantastic, fantastic Bible. Probably one, one of my favorite versions of the Bible. Um, the other night, 
Gideon, my son, he came to me and he said, he, he said, Daddy, read Bible a little bit. Read Bible a little bit. And I was torn because the reality is he wanted me to read it so we could delay him going to bed. <laughs> but he knew, he knew that Daddy, the preacher, wasn't going to turn him down from reading the Bible. So and he's only two. I don't know how they develop these sinful ways. Um, but he said, Daddy, read Bible a little bit. And so I said, all right, son, I'll read, I'll, I'll read. And so I just, I flipped open, and I flipped open to the story of Jesus washing uh, the disciples' feet. And if I'm honest, um, it was probably the most impactful rendition of Jesus washing the disciples' feet I've ever read. And I tell you a little transparency because I didn't bring the Bible this morning, so I don't have it to read to you. But what I recall from reading that is... To think about what it meant for someone during that day to wash someone else's feet. We can't quite understand it when we just think about it in our 2022 context. Sally Lloyd-Jones, she goes on to depict pretty graphically what the people walked in in bare feet and open-toed sandals. The kind of unquestionable things they were wading through as they walked through dirt roads. Animal feces and all these kinds of things. And when they were up in this upper room, celebrating the Passover, Jesus thinks to himself, what is the most debased thing that I can do for these friends of mine? That they may know how much I love them and how much they're to love each other. And so he takes off his robe. He takes off his cloak. Again, friends, you don't, we don't understand what that means. For a man of nobility to disrobe himself in public, that's, that, that's, that's the low of the low. And then you know what else he does? He kneels down. He kneels down. Only servants kneel. And then he begins to wash their dirty, stinking, filthy, poop-encrusted feet. And then he says, he says, do you see what I've done? Do you see what I've done? for each other. I want to ask you a question. As you think about the way you serve each other, as we think about the way we serve each other, how close to Jesus are we in this story? How close are we to loving each other like that? what Jesus calls, calls us to. He says, you see what I've done. Do this for each other. As we close, I'll tell you something right now. Devil, get out of here. Play with me. As we turn our hearts and our minds to communion as Pastor Drew comes and leads us, it's our opportunity to remind us the levels to which our Lord Jesus Christ has condescended. When we take of that body and that blood, understand all that Jesus gave up so that he could be present with us right here. Now, if you're here this morning and you heard me talk about being in Christ by faith and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what any of that means. Let me just break it down to you. It simply means this. Jesus died so that we can be forgiven. Jesus died so that we can be a part of his family. And if this morning you don't, you're not a part of that family, here's your opportunity to be a part of that. 
As we think about what he's done in his body and his blood, we go through the liturgy. It's, this is your opportunity to confess that in faith this morning. And to be found in him and he in us. Let's pray for us. Dear Lord, I thank you so much again for this Sunday.